Chapter Six, Part One of the American Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Language by H. L. Mencken. Chapter Six: The Common Speech, Part One. Grammarians and Their Ways. So far, in the main the language examined has been of a relatively pretentious and self-conscious variety the speech if not always of formal discourse then at least of literate men most of the examples of its vocabulary and idiom in fact have been drawn from written documents or from written reports of more or less careful utterances for example the speeches of members of congress and of other public men the whole of thornton's excellent material is of this character in his dictionary there is scarcely a locution that is not supported by printed examples it must be obvious that such materials however lavishly set forth cannot exhibit the methods and tendencies of a living speech with anything approaching completeness, nor even with accuracy. What men put into writing, and what they say when they take sober thought, are very far from what they utter in everyday conversation. All of us, no matter how careful our speech habits, loosen the belt a bit, so to speak, when we speak familiarly to our fellows and pay a good deal less heed to precedents and proprieties perhaps than we ought to it was a sure instinct that made ibsen put bad grammar into the mouth of nora helmar in a doll's house she is a general's daughter and the wife of a professor but even professors' wives are not above occasional bogglings of the cases of pronouns and the conjugations of verbs. The professors themselves, in truth, must have the same habit, for sometimes they show plain signs of it in print. More than once, ploughing through profound and interminable treatises of grammar and syntax in preparation for the present work, I have encountered the cheering spectacle of one grammarian exposing with contagious joy the grammatical lapses of some other grammarian, and nine times out of ten, a few pages further on, I have found the enchanted purist erring himself. The most funereal of the sciences is saved from utter horror by such displays of human malice and fallibility. Speech itself, indeed, would become almost impossible if the grammarians could follow their own rules unfailingly, and were always right. But here we are among the learned, and their sins, when detected and exposed, are at least punished by conscience. What are of more importance to those interested in language as a living thing, are the offendings of the millions who are not conscious of any wrong. It is among these millions, ignorant of regulation and eager only to express their ideas clearly and forcefully, 
that language undergoes its great changes and constantly renews its vitality these are the genuine makers of grammar marching miles ahead of the formal grammarians like the emperor sigismund each man among them may well say ergo sum super grammaticam it is competent for any individual to offer his contribution his new word his better idiom his novel figure of speech his short cut in grammar or syntax and it is by the general vote of the whole body not by the verdict of a small school that the fate of the innovation is decided as brander matthews says there is not even representative government in the matter the posse comitatus decides directly and despite the sternest protest finally the ignorant the rebellious and the daring come forward with their brilliant barbarisms the learned and conservative bring up their objections and when both sides have been heard there is a show of hands and by this the irrevocable decision of the community itself is rendered thus it was that the romance languages were fashioned out of the wreck of latin the vast influence of the literate minority to the contrary notwithstanding thus it was too that english lost its case inflections and many of its old conjugations and that our yes came to be substituted for the gay sea or so be it of an earlier day and that we got rid of whom after man in the man i saw and that our stark pronoun of the first person was precipitated from the german ich and thus it is that in our own day the language faces forces in america which not content with overhauling and greatly enriching its materials now threaten to work changes in its very structure where these tendencies run strongest of course is on the plane of the vulgar spoken language among all classes the everyday speech departs very far from orthodox english and even very far from any recognizable spoken english but among those lower classes which make up the great body of the people it gets so far from orthodox english that it gives promise sooner or late of throwing off its old bonds altogether or at any rate all save the loosest of them behind it is the gigantic impulse that i have described in earlier chapters the impulse of an egoistic and iconoclastic people facing a new order of life in highly self-conscious freedom to break a relatively stable language long since emerged from its period of growth to their novel and multitudinous needs and above all to their experimental and impatient spirit this impulse it must be plain would war fiercely upon any attempt at formal regulation however prudent and elastic it is often rebellious for the mere sake of rebellion but what it comes into conflict with in america 
is nothing so politic, and hence nothing so likely to keep the brakes upon it. What it actually encounters here is a formalism that is artificial, illogical, and almost unintelligible. A formalism borrowed from English grammarians, and by them brought into English against all fact and reason from the Latin. In most of our grammars, perhaps in all of those issued earlier than the opening of the twentieth century, says Matthews, we find linguistic laws laid down which are in blank contradiction with the genius of the language. In brief, the American schoolboy, hauled before a pedagogue, to be instructed in the structure and organization of the tongue he speaks, is actually instructed in the structure and organization of a tongue that he never hears at all, and seldom reads, and that, in more than one of the characters thus set before him, does not even exist. The effects of this are twofold. On the one hand, he conceives an antipathy to a subject so lacking in intelligibility and utility. As one teacher puts it, pupils tire of it. Often they see nothing in it, because there is nothing in it. And on the other hand, the schoolboy goes entirely without sympathetic guidance in the living language that he actually speaks in and out of the classroom, and that he will probably speak all the rest of his life. All he hears in relation to it is a series of sneers and prohibitions, most of them grounded not upon principles deduced from its own nature, but upon its divergences from the theoretical language that he is so unsuccessfully taught. The net result is that all the instruction he receives passes for naught. It is not sufficient to make him a master of orthodox English, and it is not sufficient to rid him of the speech habits of his home and daily life. Thus he is thrown back upon these speech habits without any helpful restraint or guidance, and they make him a willing ally of the radical and often extravagant tendencies which show themselves in the vulgar tongue. In other words, the very effort to teach him in excessively tight and formal English promotes his use of a loose and rebellious English. And so the grammarians, with the traditional fatuity of their order, labor for the destruction of the grammar they defend, and for the decay of all those refinements of speech that go with it. The folly of this system, of course, has not failed to attract the attention of the more intelligent teachers, nor have they failed to observe the causes of its failure. Much of the fruitlessness of the study of English grammar, says Wilcox, and many of the obstacles encountered in its study are due to the difficulties created by the grammarians. These difficulties arise chiefly from three sources excessive classification, multiplication of terms for a single conception, and the attempt to treat the English language as if it were highly inflected. So long ago as the 60s, Richard Grant White, 
began an onslaught upon all such punditic stupidities he saw clearly that the attempt to treat english as if it were highly inflected was making its intelligent study almost impossible and proposed boldly that all english grammar books be burned of late his ideas have begun to gain a certain acceptance and as the literature of denunciation has grown the grammarians have been constrained to overhaul their texts when i was a schoolboy during the penultimate decade of the last century the chief american grammar was a practical grammar of the english language by thomas w harvey this formidable work was almost purely synthetical it began with a long series of definitions wholly unintelligible to a child and proceeded into a maddening maze of pedagogical distinctions puzzling even to an adult the latter-day grammars at least those for the elementary schools are far more analytical and logical for example there is longman's briefer grammar by george j smith a text now in very wide use this book starts off not with page after page of abstractions but with a well-devised examination of the complete sentence and the characters and relations of the parts of speech are very simply and clearly developed but before the end the author begins to succumb to precedent and on page one hundred and fourteen i find paragraph after paragraph of such dull fly-blown pedantry as this some intransitive verbs are used to link the subject and some adjective or noun these verbs are called copulative verbs and the adjective or noun is called the attribute the attribute always describes or denotes the person or thing denoted by the subject verbals are words that are derived from verbs and express action or being without asserting it infinitives and participles are verbals and so on smith in his preface says that his book is intended not so much to cover the subject of grammar as to teach it and calls attention to the fact somewhat proudly that he has omitted the rather hard subject of gerunds all mention of conjunctive adverbs and even the conjugation of verbs nevertheless he immerses himself in the mythical objective case of nouns on page one o eight and does not emerge until the end footnote even sweet though he bases his new english grammar upon the spoken language and thus sets the purists at defiance quickly succumbs to the labeling mania thus his classifications of tenses include such fabulous monsters as these continuous recurrent neutral definite indefinite secondary incomplete inchoate short and long End of footnote. the new webster cooley course in english another popular text carries reform a step further the subject of case is approached through the personal pronouns where it retains its only surviving intelligibility and the more lucid object form is used in place of objective case moreover 
the pupil is plainly informed later on that a noun has in reality but two case forms a possessive and a common case form this is the best concession to the facts yet made by a textbook grammarian but no one familiar with the habits of the pedagogical mind need be told that its interior pull is against even such mild and obvious reforms defenders of the old order are by no means silent a fear seems to prevail that grammar robbed of its imbecile classifications may collapse entirely wilcox records how the council of english teachers of new jersey but a few years ago spoke out boldly for the recognition of no less than five cases in english why five asks wilcox why not eight or ten or even thirteen undoubtedly because there are five cases in latin most of the current efforts at improvement in fact tend toward a mere revision and multiplication of classifications the pedant is eternally convinced that pigeonholing and relabeling are contributions to knowledge a curious proof in point is offered by a pamphlet entitled reorganization of english in secondary schools compiled by james fleming hosick and issued by the national bureau of education the aim of this pamphlet is to rid the teaching of english including grammar of its accumulated formalism and ineffectiveness to make it genuine instruction instead of a pedantic and meaningless routine and how is this revolutionary aim set forth by a meticulous and merciless splitting of hairs a gigantic manufacture of classifications and subclassifications a colossal display of professional bombast and flatulence i could cite many other examples perhaps after all the disease is incurable what such laborious stupidity shows at bottom is simply this that the sort of man who is willing to devote his life to teaching grammar to children or to training school marms to do it is not often the sort of man who is intelligent enough to do it competently in particular he is not often intelligent enough to grapple with the fluent and ever amazing permutations of a living and rebellious speech the only way he can grapple with it at all is by first reducing it to a fixed and formal organization in brief by first killing it and embalming it the difference in the resultant proceedings is not unlike that between a gross dissection and a surgical operation the difficulties of the former are quickly mastered by any student of normal sense but even the most casual of laparotomies calls for a man of special skill and address thus the elementary study of the national language at least in america is almost monopolized by dullards children are taught it by men and women who observe it inaccurately and expound it ignorantly in most other fields the pedagogue meets a certain corrective competition and criticism 
the teacher of any branch of applied mathematics for example has practical engineers at his elbow and they quickly expose and denounce his defects the college teacher of chemistry however limited his equipment at least has the aid of textbooks written by actual chemists but english even in its most formal shapes is chiefly taught by those who cannot write it decently and who get no aid from those who can one wades through treatise after treatise on english style by pedagogues whose own style is atrocious a huxley or a stevenson might have written one of high merit and utility but huxley and stevenson had other fish to fry and so the business was left to professor balderdash consider the standard texts on prosody vast piles of meaningless words hollow babble about spondees iambics trochees and so on idiotic borrowings from dead languages two poets poe and lanier blew blasts of fresh air through that fog but they had no successors and it has apparently closed in again in the department of prose it lies wholly unbroken no first-rate writer of english prose has ever written a textbook upon the art of writing it End chapter six part one